Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to be in your word and to hear what you'd have to say to us from that word. Father, even if the word we hear is difficult to hear, my prayer is that you would make us mindful that you have called us to this place of discipleship and following you. And so, Lord, as we experience the love of Jesus about which we've just sung, call us into a deeper connection with him through this experience in in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know some of you are RV people, recreational vehicle people. I am not an RV person. Let me tell you why. When I lived in Colorado, for some reason, I'm thinking now it may have been demon possession. For some reason, I bought a 25-year-old Winnebago RV. That was the Brave model. It's the little short one. But nonetheless, I purchased it. I thought, I could be an RV person. That's convenient. You got the bathroom right there. You go someplace. You don't have to worry about, you know, all those finding a hotel room or something. I'll be an RV person. So I bought this 25-year-old Winnebago, which I came to affectionately call a Winnebango. Because my first experimental trip with this Winnebago was 1,157 miles from Woodland Park, Colorado to Brownsville, Texas to see my parents. I thought, what an adventure, taking the RV to see my folks. My dad said, are you sure about this? I said, "Uh uh-huh, sure, I'm sure about this. Why wouldn't I be? Well, let me tell you. I knew I was in trouble at the first gasoline stop when I pulled in, mindful of the overhang. When I pulled in and I was out pumping gas, this thing got 0.2 miles to the gallon. As I was pumping the gas, a guy pulls up next to me in a Mercedes. He looks over at me and he just lost his mind laughing hysterically at my Winnebago. And then what started to happen was things started to fall off the Winnebago. The first thing that fell off was the muffler. It just fell off. Made a loud clanking noise. I'm going down the road. I hear a loud clanking noise. I went, huh, I wonder what that was. And then suddenly the engine noise gets like this monstrous vibration at the wheel. And so from then on, through all 1,157 miles, with regularity, something else would go wrong. It's a bit of a crisis. When the, uh, the toilet facilities in the Winnebago won't flush. That's a bit of a crisis. You get the picture, right? So about 100 miles out from my parents' house, I got a flat tire. Fun. Nothing says fun like a flat tire on a recreational vehicle. In fact, I was wondering why they attached the word recreational to vehicle. To me, it should have been occupational or hazardous, or painful. I've got a flat tire. I called my parents and uh, said, you know, Dad, we're about 100 miles away. We've got a flat tire. Um, we, we need some help. Um, can you help us with that? And so he, you know, did the, the call the AAA people. And all, by the way, AAA and recreational vehicles, not a good match. So anyway, they were on their way, and my mom and dad came to get me, and, and uh, they looked, and 
They laughed a lot at the Winnebago, which was hurtful. But nonetheless, let me tell you what they did not do. They did not say, this was a disaster that you got into all by yourself. You need to go back to the beginning of this thing and make it right. They didn't do that. What they did was meet, us, meet me where I was at my point of need and took me to where I needed to be. That's what they did. My mom and dad, who we remembered yesterday. And that, folks, because if they had told me to go back to the beginning, that would have been absurd, right? I was there at my point of need. I was broken down and I needed help there to get from where I was to where I needed to be. Well, that's what's going to happen in the passage in the Bible that we're going to talk about today in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to meet us where we are and invite us with him to go where we need to be. Now, I've got to tell you that, frankly, this passage in Scripture, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, I would have loved to skip. In fact, I probably could have skipped it, and you would have never known. But I would have known. And so all this week, as I share with you that I struggled with this passage, I want you to know that we're doing it because we want to be faithful to all of Scripture and hear what God has to say to us in all of Scripture. Because as I unpack this passage this morning, uh, I'm guessing that Jesus knew when he first spoke these words, and I know that when I repeat them, there are people in this room who have suffered through the torture of divorce, including, frankly, Pastor Laura and and myself. And there are lots of things I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, and this is one of those things, if I could avoid it, I would, but I can't. Here we are. So Jesus' intent is not to take us back to some spot where we made a mistake and go, yeah, yeah, you really, really messed up there. That is never his intent. His intent is always to meet us where we are and take us where we need to be. So what I want to do this morning is listen in on Jesus' intent to talk to us wherever we happen to be in our present state of affairs and relational connection, single, married, whatever, and have us hear God's plan for this idea of his that he called, that we call marriage. So, Jesus is going to call us to live out God's plan for permanence and partnership in marriage. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles in the pew in front of you to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 1570, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. By the way, I eventually sold my Winnebago for slightly less than I paid for it. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. Well, they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And let me say again, right up front, that I was working through this passage this week. This was no fun for me at all. But I want to be faithful to the scriptures, so here we are. With God's plan for marriage, and it begins in verse 9 with this idea of permanence, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Ruth Graham, the husband of Billy Graham, one time was asked if she had ever considered divorcing Billy Graham, and she said, murder, yes, divorce, no. (laughs) Because the minute we say I do, we enter into what is designed by God to be a, a lifetime commitment. You know, marriage is not like the IRS tax code where we're constantly looking for loopholes and exemptions and a way out. No permanence. And it's not just permanence, but it's permanence with a purpose. And the purpose is partnership. Be united. We were seated out in the Williams Welcome Center this morning and Sandy walked by and and, uh, Pastor Gary and Pastor Laura and myself and several of the ladies of the church were seated there, and Sandy said, hi, boys and girls. I think she was trying to make us feel better. A little subtle message there. But nonetheless, she got it, which is common sense, right? Men and women were different. And this difference is God designed to link us together in a way that provides the opportunity for partnership that can be powerful and wonderful. Men and women are different. I think our culture is a little confused about this right now, and I'm sorry about that, but I think the evidence is clear. Men and women are different. And sometimes men, well, let's, how can I gently put this? Sometimes men can be stupid. And we, we desperately need the assistance of these women in our lives to keep us from being as stupid as we would be all by ourselves. When I was in the military, I uh, ran into a guy who uh, worked in the services division, and the services division had a lot of different responsibilities, but one of them was attending to the families of military members who had died. And so um, I was chatting with this guy, and we were talking a little bit, and he started to giggle. I said, what? That's, there's nothing funny about that. What, what's, what are you laughing about? And he said, well, I've got to tell you, after a while, you become kind of numb to the individual pain, and some of the stories are, are just ridiculous. Some of these guys do the stupidest things. One guy, he said, wanted to repair something on his roof, but he wanted to be securely anchored, so he attached a rope to the bumper of his car, climbed up the ladder to the other side of the roof, and he's working away. Wife, uninformed about husband's plan, gets into the car and drives away. Deceased Air Force member, men can be stupid. If you're going to anchor yourself, don't anchor yourself to something that's, you know, going to move. So God calls us to this sense of partnership, which is why I think we need to pay attention to these principles that he unpacks in this passage for us. 
He says, husbands and wives, they leave their mom and dad. It's a, it's a shifting of basic loyalty. It's a shifting of priority and relationship. It's not necessarily physical departure, because in this day and time, the time that Jesus was talking about, in which he was speaking, families often, extended families often lived like right there together. So it wasn't that they were necessarily geographically distant like we have with many families today. My kids are in Oklahoma and Colorado and Massachusetts. You know, it wasn't geographic distance. It was a sense of relational reassessment. There's a television show a few years back about a, a mom who had his son's wife killed. The son wouldn't let, a, let go of his mother and cleave to his wife. And uh, even though he tried, she got mad and she had the wife killed. Don't do that, by the way. Don't, don't do that. And Jesus says, we're called to be one flesh. This is a Bible expression that occurs several times. And it's a description of a totality of union. So yes, there is sexual union. Sex was God's idea. Yay, God. But it's more than that. It's a spiritual union, including ministry together. And in that opportunity, there is the potential for something wonderful. I don't know if you've cruised through the book of Acts and read about this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Married couple, working together, serving together in ministry, teaching people who needed to know more about Jesus. That's the kind of picture that Jesus is painting here about the potential for a marriage relationship, spiritual union, mental union, right? If you've been married to somebody for a while, eventually, Pastor Laura and I do this, we end up completing each other's sentences. I think we should, and then, you know, it just happens all the time. Because this union is a constantly growing thing. And of course, emotional union is attached to that. There's the old story about the couple who'd been married for 30 years and they were struggling a little bit and so they went to see a marriage counselor and the, he, and the marriage counselor asked the, the lady, well, what, what's the problem? She says, I just don't even know if he loves me anymore. And he said to her, the marriage counselor said to the guy, do you love your wife? And the guy said, well, yeah, I told her the day we got married if I change my mind, I'll let her know. <laughs> so if all those things are true about God's plan for marriage, why is, the, why is divorce a reality? It was and it is, according to this passage, God's accommodation. Because hearts can become hardened. And in that day and time, it served primarily as protection for the woman who could have been viewed as property and disposed of really easily. Jesus elevates the status of women. He does this here in this passage, and he does it all over when he speaks. The first witnesses to his resurrection, the first, the first people who testified about the resurrection of Jesus were women. Man, don't let folks fool you. When we look at scripture, the greatest friend women ever had, Jesus. So what's the background of this question? Well, remember in the passage, it said the Pharisees came to test Jesus. These guys were always trying to trip him up and get him in trouble so they could find a reason to do bad things to him. 
So they came to him and tested him. So the background of this is, in that day and that time, there was a division over the interpretation of a passage in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce, give it to her, and send her from his house. So in Jesus' day and time, there were kind of two schools of thought about this. There was a group of people who followed a rabbi named Shammai, who had a very strict interpretation of this reason for separation. And he said, really, it could only be for fundamental violation of the law. And then there was a school of a guy, a rabbi, a teacher named Hillel, who had kind of a very loose interpretation of this. And he said things like, well, you know, if she burns a meal, if she talks too loudly, if she's just generally irritating, he can send her away. So the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. And Jesus says, no, no, you're not getting it. According to the school of that guy, Hillel, Paul Simon underestimate the number of reasons with his 50 reasons to leave your lover. So Jesus moves in in this passage and he emphasizes permanence and partnership based on that prior revelation in Genesis. And here gives two reasons for divorce. Adultery, and in the original language of the Bible, this is a word from which we get our English word pornography. It's just a range, this category of sexual sin. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will talk about a grounds for divorce and separation being uh, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And desertion can often be by means of, you can still be physically present, but the spouse can be being abused and wounded and Acting like an unbeliever. My daughter is a social worker in Oklahoma. She works with kids who have come from traumatic households. And these stories that she has of the ways that people treat each other and the ways that husbands sometimes treat their wives, they are horrendous. Horrendous. But beyond those things, you know, people do divorce sometimes for other reasons. Sometimes there are very egregious issues. Sometimes we just didn't work at it enough. When we do that, we need to recognize that they fall outside the revealed will of God. So given that, what should be our our response? This is what I love about Jesus. This is one of the many things I love about him. He doesn't say go back and don't buy the Winnebago. Retrace your disastrous steps. He meets you where you are and invites you to come with him to the place that we should go. So he says things like this. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 11. Woman caught in adultery, getting set up to be stoned by the crowd. Another test for Jesus. Jesus, you know, uh, he passes the test by saying, hey, you guys with those rocks in your hands? Any one of you with, without sin? Go ahead and throw the first rock. Go ahead. Well, they look around at each other and they realize, of course, right? None of them is without sin. So finally they all go away. It's just the woman left and Jesus left. And what does he say to her? He doesn't say to her, yeah, you need to go back 
and fix everything you've ever done wrong and then come talk to me. No, he says to this, he says to her, go and sin no more. He takes her from where she is and invites her to where she needs to go. I love that about Jesus. The world is full of moralizing, condemning people. Sad to say, many of those people sit in worship services on Sunday morning in churches all across our land and all around the world. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is not a moralizing, condemning person. He takes us from where we are, even if where we are is a place of, let's let's use the word, sin. And he says, come on, come with me. Follow me. So we, we need to wake up, I think. Wake up a bit to the need for preparation for marriage. Now, I don't know how many of you out there are contemplating marriage right now, but you probably know somebody who is. Marriages need to be prepared for. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with couples who are going to get married, who have given all their attention to the wedding day and none of their attention to what's going to happen the next day. I am not making this up. (coughs) Website, costofwedding.com. The average cost for a wedding reception in the United States today is $25,764. That's a lot of money. And my experience is that folks will expend all kinds of effort and expense on the preparations for the ceremony, but almost none on the marriage. We should wake up to our sometimes indifference about marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We need to wake up to the need for constant marriage maintenance. And there's something that we often miss in our very personal focus on this. We miss that marriage, hear me, marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. And it's preceded in the Bible by the picture of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Do you see the picture? This union between God and his people is represented in some, you know, sometimes not very pretty way by the union between a man and a woman in their marriage. And so this picture is brought to fruition in the New Testament. It's a picture of Jesus and the church. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. So marriage is not just about, Christian marriage is not just about the relationship between the two people. It's the potential for that relationship to illustrate what God wants to do through Christ and his church. Are you having as much fun as I've had with this? Jimmy Carter, the former president, turned 95 this last week, last Tuesday. He now has the record for being the oldest president ever. 
95. Now, I don't know what you think of Jimmy Carter and his politics and his presidency. Frankly, that doesn't matter to me. What I've been impressed about is his consistency in trying to do good for people even after he was done being president. He was like the Habitat for Humanity poster child. So that impresses me. His age impresses me. The fact that he still has his wits about him at 95, that impresses me. There are days with, when me, with slightly less years than 95, I can't find my wits to save my life. But here's the thing. In our day and time, when we tend to elevate and gravitate and look towards pretend heroes, on the big screen, on the little screen, Captain America. You know he's not real, right? But here's what impresses me most about Jimmy Carter. He and his wife, Rosalind, have been married for 72 years. 72 years. And apparently they still like each other. I saw a picture of them the other day. They walk from their house, they walk from their house over to the little church where Jimmy Carter still teaches Sunday school at 95. And they were walking back, holding hands with their Secret Service people just right behind them. I thought, wow, that, folks, is what a hero looks like. That's what a Christian marriage looks like. So, Again, I don't know where we are in this room. <clears throat> and I know many of you have, have uh, lost your spouses, and, uh, and I grieve with you for that. We were, I was visiting with a gentleman from the church a little while back, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said, not very good. I just miss my wife. I remember my dad, after my wife, his wife passed away, my mom passed away, He just never really found himself again. It was like a piece of him was gone and he couldn't get it back. And no matter what else he tried to do or what else his, you know, not very wise children tried to encourage him to do, it wouldn't fill that space. These are heroes, folks. 72 years till death do us part. Real life heroes. And they deserve our respect for living out what God has called them to do in their marriage. So wherever you are today, whether marriage is a present reality or a future reality, or whether you are closely connected to siblings or children or cousins or nieces or nephews or whatever who are contemplating this holy thing called marriage, I believe God is calling us to commit to this same notion of permanence and partnership. Meeting us where we are, taking us where we need to go. Pray with me. Father, we thank you today for the many ways that you have met us in the middle of our failures, picked us up, dusted us off, held us by the hand, sometimes carried us to the place that we need to go. And so, Lord, in this business of a conversation about marriage, we pray that wherever we are, you would meet us there with your power and your love and your grace and take us to where we need to go. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.